Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Thrunar Nivenheim, futurist, author, investor, and serial entrepreneur. Join me as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech, such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and more, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship trends or the future of work. On the show, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. In episode 145 of the podcast, the topic is investing in SciTech futures. Our guest is Shaheen Farshi, partner at Lux Capital. In this conversation, uh, they talk about investing in emerging science and technology ventures at the outermost edges of what's possible. What Shaheen's thesis is on the future of autonomous vehicles and automation, space technology, etc., and how he arrives at that thesis. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, which we always appreciate, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurized.org slash episodes. They are collections of your favorite episodes organized by topic, such as entrepreneurship, trends, emerging tech, or the future of work. That'll help new listeners get a taste of everything that we do here, starting with a topic they are familiar with or want to go deeper in. The host of the podcast, Trond Entheim, is the author of Health Tech, published by Rutledge in 2021, Future Tech, published by Kogan Page in the same year, Pandemic Aftermath, published in 2020, and also Disruption Games, published in 2020, and then finally Leadership from Below, published by Lula Press in 2008. For an overview, go to Trant's books at trantandheim.com books. At this stage, Futurized is lucky enough to have several sponsors. To check them out, go to futurized.org slash sponsors. If you are interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by the host of this podcast, including how to book him for keynote speeches, please go to futurized.org slash store. We will consider all brands that have a demonstrably positive contribution to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurized.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future. I hope you can also leave a positive review on iTunes or in your favorite podcast player. It really matters to the future of this podcast. Thanks so much. Let's begin. Shaheen, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm I'm doing great. I'm very excited to talk to you. Um, you've done a lot of uh, investments, and you've been engaged in so many exciting technology trends over the past decade uh, and 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 more. How how do you feel about all this? I feel great. I feel very privileged to be working with the people that I work with and the companies that I'm engaged with at this time, which I think is a very interesting time. Yeah, I wanted to take it back to your backgrounds. I always find it fascinating to just look a little bit uh, at what people have done. I noticed you have a bachelor in uh, ECS from from Berkeley, and I read somewhere online that you know even before that you were kind of eagerly watching as your father got his PhD in some other engineering topic, I believe from from Berkeley. So Berkeley has featured uh, prominently in, in your kind of academic or uh, technological career. 
That's right. And my brother is also a, a PhD from Berkeley as well. So Berkeley runs deep in the family. Yeah, it's a great school. I was there for a year. It's a wonderful, uh, wonderful place. Um, and then you you also have this interesting cultural mix that I thought I wanted to address a little bit. So you, you speak several languages. You speak Farsi. That's uh, that's very cool. Thank you. My parents are how, how Iranian. My my father immigrated to the U.S. many years before the revolution to go to school here, um, and we learned uh, to speak Farsi at home. And it was something that we basically learned at a very young age and um, ended up hanging out with other Iranian folks that helped us remember the language. And I spent a couple of years there during my high school times um, when my parents decided to move back to Iran. And so I, um, I have a good sense for the culture and the language. And it's a nice, nice, nice asset to have, um, you know, kind of makes you think more broadly uh, more worldly and not be, you know, hyper-focused in the bubble that we're in here in tech and in, in, in the United States. Yeah, no, I think you're making a good point. I mean, I I understand you spend quite a bit of time in, in Menlo Park and there's a certain mindset that's uh, great about that. And there's uh, also, I guess, a myopia coming from that. I saw one more tidbit before we sort of get started. You posted something on Twitter uh, on, on your license plate uh, uh, stickers that you, you keep as a memento. I thought that was just a very telling thing about you for, for hanging on to these kind of little mementos from, you said, you know, my first sticker, and, and this goes back, I guess, to your interest in cars, was in community college, and then you got a new sticker you remember as an intern and then as a grad student. And then you said, uh, crucial, and this is why I'm bringing it up, as an unproven or inexperienced VC, I, I find uh, a lot of the communication that you sort of put out is kind of, I guess it is a humble type of language because you, like anybody else, you you started out somewhere. You weren't always this super successful VC with like 18 portfolio investments and, you know, sort of king of the road in, in, in you know, for many founders for sure. Um, what would you say, you know, on this learning journey, you obviously have Berkeley, you have, you know, some cultural and academic background with your parents. What were some things that really were formative and got you on the track that you are now, like firmly on an investor track? I feel like perspective is something that was a, a huge asset to me or was a huge help for me. Uh, that kind of guided me through my journey. It's striking a balance between um, looking ahead and deriving um, the lessons or, or remembering lessons learned or refreshing um, the, of yourself, of the lessons that you've learned uh, along the way um, and testing those against what's changed. And so a lot of what we learn um, a lot of what we're told and what we learn at any given time is specific to that time. And obviously times change. So we have to revisit those and adjust accordingly. So I feel like these, I would say, you know, driving around in, in a car that I purchased, you know, as a, you know, with my life savings, with my life savings as a community college student and, you know, every so often reliving those times and, kind of measuring what's changed since those times and this constant reflection and revision and uh, updating of assumptions and, 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 and perspectives 
is something that has very much helped me. Um, you know, if you look at, um, you know, just looking back at my family and my parents, um, you know, they left their country at a time when the country was very different and their expectation of what the future was for them as college students ended up being very, very different um, uh, for them when they became young professionals in the 80s. Um, the country that became was very different from the country that they expected. And so being mindful that things can change, being mindful that we have to be adaptive um, to those changes and being mindful that we have to hold on to, you know, again, lessons learned from the past and adapt them to the current circumstances, I think are important um, assets to have. And at the end of the day, um, you know, we are constantly making decisions. And so being more effective at making those decisions is a very important asset to have. Well, Shaheen, there was another thing that, that I, I, I saw, which I think is fitting because you, you just told me that you're learning how to drive an airplane, pilot an airplane. And uh, before that, for the longest time, you were a subscriber to car and driver and in fact, driving and I guess also motorcycles and, and you know, any, any, anything motorized has been a part of your life for a long time. And then, you know, on your investor profile, uh, you disclose a quote from uh, Captain Jean-Luc Picard of Star Trek that things are only impossible until they're not. I'm seeing a pattern here. And as we are talking about, and, uh, and we'll be talking about kind of what you see in sort of emerging tech, you have yourself, I guess, evolved uh, between kind of cars to, to uh, airplanes. Um, what, what do you think is the fascination with all of these modes of transportation and how they you know, the, the faster and, and more uh, extravagant they are, the more fascinating they are to us. I've always been a big um, fan of, of machines. I think it was the human achievement to be able to harness um, materials and harness physics to be able to propel us um, into the future, both, you know, literally and metaphorically, was always fascinating to me, which is why I decided to to do engineering. Um, cars were obviously the most accessible, uh, even though I would absolutely love to own motorcycles and ride motorcycles. Um, my, my family was, was very much against that. So I unfortunately ended up never taking that up. Um, but I did manage um, to start taking flying lessons. And that was merely an extension of my desire to, to be part of, of these great human achievements. Um, and it was also a desire to overcome a great fear that I had, which was turbulence. So ever since I was a little kid, the slightest movement of a plane would cause extreme fear. And to this day, even though I, up until COVID was commuting to the Bay area every week from Los Angeles and spending at least two flights a week, um, uh, on commercial airlines, I was still feeling anxious as a result of hitting a few bumps on the way. And so um, uh, when I first took my first lesson, um, I felt like I was going to die that day. In fact, the next you know, few lessons were kind of um, uh, fear at the level of death. So everything the instructor would tell me would basically go out the other ear because my brain was in survival mode. Uh, but the ability to overcome that fear and eventually, you know, now I, I, I fly solo um, as part of my training um, was something that was a test for me to be able to convince myself that 
um, you know, I can overcome this fear um, and in the process be able to pursue um, a passion. You know, I, I think this context is really fascinating because, you know, there are a lot of investors out there and we all have different skills. But it seems to me that this sort of uh, conquering your fear mindset is one of the many things that you surely must be looking for, uh, you know, in addition to to the obvious, which is you're looking for technologies or approaches and, and obviously business models attached to them that can make a, a difference and create new markets or, or dominate in, in sort of new fields. So you were with with Lux. Uh, can we talk for a moment just about uh, the general environment that you are investing in? And then I want to get into some of the more exciting things that you're seeing right now. But broadly, you seem at Lux Capital to invest in kind of emerging science and technology, but a lot of it from the either from the material science side of things or certainly with a kind of hard tech bias a little bit. Is that is that right? You take a, yes. an interest in, in, in sort of uh, those two? Yes. It is an incredible time to be investing today because innovation has gone from being very much localized within certain geographies and certain institutions and certain communities to now being dispersed across geographies, across institutions, and across uh, communities and populations. Back probably 40, 50 years ago, you would expect the cutting edge science and technology to be generated at institutions like Harvard and Stanford and Bell Labs and MIT um, by people who were very much trained under people whose paths, and, I, and this is not, not a joke, whose paths probably went back to people like Thomas Edison um, because, for example, you know, the professors that I work with uh, when I was getting my PhD, you know, trace their, their lineage back to, to Thomas Edison, their educational linkage uh, or lineage back to Thomas Edison. And so it was a very elite group of people and institutions who were responsible for the vast majority of technological innovations. Um, that has very much become, um, has, has pretty much done a 180 um, over the past 10, 15 years, we are seeing some of the very, very best ideas and very best um, uh, uh, communities um, and talents coming out of a broad spectrum of institutions and communities. So what started to be kind of like these elite educational institutions or scientific institutions broadened to companies. So Hewlett Packard was a, was a pioneer in the space by taking risk on doing fundamental research. Um, we now have dozens of, of tech companies ranging from Facebook to Baidu to Yahoo to, um, uh, uh, to, to, uh, you know, Netflix and, and Apple and Amazon, um, that are taking, um, that are responsible for generating, um, the, the very best and cutting edge uh, technologies. And then now with more and more venture capital dollars being available, you no longer need to be a graduate of a known uh, academic institution. You no longer need to be an alumni of a, of, of a company like Google or Facebook or Amazon or Apple. You can simply, uh, uh, by virtue of being able to articulate an idea and being able to convince an investor that you can attract the talent that you need 
to be able to execute on this idea, then you will be able to attract the same, if not more resources than you otherwise would at an educational institution, a research institution, or a large company, and be able to execute on, on, that, on that idea without having to deal with the institutional overhead of being at one of those companies, thereby being advantaged and far more nimble. So I feel like... So you're saying this yes. goes beyond just looking for the technical founders anymore, and it's also beyond looking just at the elite institutions. That surely, though, makes your job all the much harder because... It's. I mean, I would venture to say that one of the reasons why this dominance lasted so long in venture capital is that you're sort of outsourcing your decision making really to these schools. Uh, you know, because you're assuming that okay, someone let them into Harvard or Caltech, and that means something. So Absolutely. you know, we're going to assume a certain baseline. You cannot necessarily, though, assume that same baseline if you're taking this very, very broad approach. That's absolutely right. So there was a time when by virtue of sourcing an opportunity from an institution like Caltech, you would assume that the technology was state of the art, the scientists are the absolute best, and, and the, that very, very high quality people will gravitate to this. Now, I'm not saying that that is no longer the case. I am saying that you don't necessarily need to be a product of, of Caltech to have these attributes. What used to be the exception probably 10, 15 years ago, where it was an exception to not be an alumni or uh, sourced from one of these institutions is now becoming the norm. Now, there are just as many exciting opportunities and perhaps even more exciting opportunities coming out of the uh, coming out of um, uh, 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 groups that are, you know, college dropouts or even high school dropouts or folks that work for companies that are non-FANG companies that probably have as much merit, if not more merit, than the companies or the ideas that were previously rooted in places like Facebook and Apple or institutions like Caltech and Stanford. Shaheen, when you say this, are you sure you're not sort of just speaking for your own uh, sake and sort of like preaching something that will give you an edge just because everyone else is not looking there? Or are you saying that pretty much the entire industry is slowly moving this way and has gotten uh, or is getting used to a much wider aperture on their lens? Or are you saying that you specifically, you have been looking that way for, for longer? The aperture has certainly widened over the past five, six years. I, I, I expect that most investors will tell you the same thing, that although they continue to respect these institutions of technology and talent, that they spend the majority of their time um, looking for communities of people. For example, I spoke to an investor um, recently, who has been a very successful investor by focusing purely on hackathons or people that participate in hackathons. Now, there's a time when hackathons were organized by large companies that were trying to solve a problem or universities and typically only uh, included their own communities. But as you know, back you know five, six years ago, these hackathons were expanded, uh, perhaps even longer, 10 years ago, these hackathons were expanded more broadly. And you know, a high school kid, uh, could participate in these events and come up with a very interesting solution. And investors have been taking notice 
uh, for about the same period of time and are looking uh, to these sources of talent. So keep in mind that at the end of the day, my job as an investor is to identify these pockets of talent and make sure that they have the resources to be able to go out and achieve grand visions towards building multi-billion dollar companies. Yeah, I mean, this is super interesting. There is a paradox here, though, and I wanted to hear what your take is on this. And, you know, some of the things I'm just going to list some areas that I know you're interested in and, and Lux is interested in, and they happen to match some of the areas I'm interested in. And let's see, because, you know, all right, so let's let's go for these these topics. So augmented reality, robots, which ties into machines, which I know you you care a lot about. Uh, and then let's just hit a couple of other things, you know, metamaterials, so, you know, material science innovations, uh, and then synthetic biology, and of course, you know, self-driving cars and the whole topic of autonomy, which I know you care deeply about, and then sort of the security of things, so this, uh, anything, you know, regarding the security aspect. These are just some areas that I know you are interested in and that seem to, they tie in, however, to very complicated areas. So it's re for me, it's very paradoxical that we live in a society where presumably the everyday competence to venture to talk about or have any opinion about these areas surely demands some amount of knowledge. But at the other end of it, you're saying combining these insights into you know, building a startup, you don't necessarily need to be that tech guru of any of these like you might invest in some of these fairly deep technical areas with a founder that just convinces you that you know she or he has access to you know some synthetic biology wizards with some it component and a very clever business model i'll take this comment that you made a step further and saying that you don't even necessarily need to be a insider uh, within a given industry to have a good shot of disrupting that industry. And the reason why I say this is because by virtue of having spent a lot of time in a given industry, you may not have the, um, uh, the flexibility because as people, when we're subject to environments, we tend to become a little bit rigid in those constructs. And so by virtue of being an outsider, you may be advantaged and saying, wait a minute, what if this um, change was made to this industry? What if we introduced this technology into this industry? And if you, were to, if you were to bring that up with any insider, they would probably say, oh, there's no way um, that's going to work. Or yeah, we tried that before, you know, seven, eight years ago, 10 years ago, and it was an abject failure. And if anybody brings it up again, they'll be laughed out of the room. Well, that was seven, eight years ago. And the insiders are probably right that if somebody from the insider or a quote unquote expert suggests this, they probably would get laughed at by, by, by the community. But an outsider who is taking a perhaps even a naive perspective at an industry and is looking at the current state of the art as opposed to limiting themselves with like the challenges that took that that existed probably in the past probably would be in a good position to be able to propose um, a possible solution and so um, to take what you said a bit further not only does this person not necessarily have to be an expert 
this person doesn't even necessarily have to be a industry quote unquote insider to be in a position to disrupt that industry. Now, obviously this person can't be a, you know, naive cowboy kind of shooting from the hip and just, you know, uh, throwing spaghetti on the wall. Um, obviously these assumptions, these, and these hypotheses need to be tested, but if this person is capable of convincing a few people who are insiders that, Hey, here's what's different this time around. Here's how technology has matured that could overcome the challenges that this technology had earlier in this industry. Or here is a novel approach that because of all the previous failures that have been attempted, um, uh, hasn't been tried. Um, and if this person can attract those high quality people to execute on this, then that person probably would be a good bet um, or a good investment for someone like myself to get behind. Again, even though there isn't a formal background or a, again, a career uh, in that industry in the past. So, so let me probe a little deeper then on, on what you actually mean, Shaheen, because, you know, typically, you know, as investors, we have a thesis on what the future holds. And certainly uh, in order to get, uh, you know, LPs that invest in our funds, we would have to convince them that not only do we have a thesis, we, we, we have an idea of what we're investing in more broadly. Now, would you take your statements so far as to not just sort of apply to the talent you're seeking, but... Would would people, uh, to a larger degree, could come into VCs, not necessarily Lux or you, but any VC, uh, you know, going forward, and sort of even just convince you that your thesis is wrong? I mean, are you basically saying that um, what's happening now is that authority in subjects, but also authority in terms of really wrapping your heads around kind of even spaces of investment, is that also similarly kind of shattering? as like the notion of industries is becoming more opaque or, or are we not there yet? You still have a fairly clear thesis right now about which emerging tech domains are ripe for certain kinds of disruption. Or would you say an investor, I mean, a, a talented team or an individual could come into your office and completely blow you away, even if you had never mentioned this to your uh, LPs or you had never had with your partners a discussion about this particular subject area? It's very much the latter. I can go as far to say that I have been very clear about anti-theses. So for example, I spent some time working for General Motors. I spent the early part of my career at Lux looking at automotive radar um, because at that time, uh, radios were being integrated into silicon, which made them extremely inexpensive and made it possible for a vehicle to have multiple radar sensors um, at very low cost. And I was interested in investing in, in, in radar companies back in 2007, 2008 timeframe, my early years at Lux. And I learned that it is likely going to be a terrible venture investment. And what happened was, was, was exactly what I predicted, which was many large companies had put radar on passenger vehicles, but not a single startup that was venture-backed created a return for, for venture investors in the process of doing so. And so um, I was convinced that selling a gadget into the automotive supply chain is not interesting for a venture investor. That's until I met two individuals 
from Apple who had spent time thinking about this problem and to the earlier conversation that we had made a case as to how the supply chain has changed and how the supply chain is more conducive to a startup and started a company uh, called Ava, which is now a publicly traded company um, that is solving the sensor or perception problem, not just for automotive, but for any kind of robotic machine. And so going back to your question, I, I'm taking it to the extreme here where there was a thesis that an area is not interesting and we were compelled to invest in that area in the antithesis by extremely high quality entrepreneurs that we wanted to get behind. So to your question on what is our thesis as a firm, we want to get behind amazing people that are solving big problems that can be technical in nature, and we're not afraid to take on that technical risk with the expectation that if they're able to solve these technical problems and offer these products, that they could indeed become the basis of multi-billion dollar uh, transformational companies. That does not mean that there is necessarily a, a, a thesis to invest in metamaterials or invest in augmented reality or invest in the metaverse. Those are areas that individuals like myself may have an interest in and may have um, a network in, um, but the driver is always the people and the challenge around the problem that they're solving and the business that could be in the best case scenario with that problem having been solved. Well, it's interesting uh, in in this space that you know if an investor tries to be humble, they will claim you know it's not so much uh, me, but it is the founder. Yet, you know, at some point you have to de uh, defend your business model too. I mean, I'm assuming you don't think it's a free for all that any money is good money here. Surely there are certain paths that an entrepreneur takes, and you know there. So I guess just talk to me a little bit about this track record, the value of having brought something new uh, into being by, you know, by being an investor at a certain stage and following those companies. What, if anything, do you think is sort of the lasting impact of having that experience as an investment team? What do you think it uh, does? Because surely, um, you know, you, you would, I would guess, argue that, you know, Luxus money is better than random money on the street because there's more to it than just capital. So tell, tell me about this journey of what, what exactly, what kind of value, apart from identifying value, which I guess is very, very valuable, to stop a founder in, in, in his or her tracks and just say, this is the moment we are going to believe in you now, as opposed to, you know, uh, walk around for a year and come back. But you, you pick your time and you say, you know, this is important now. What is the value of an, of an investor in the emerging tech space right now? What exactly is it that one should contribute? So keep in mind that the theme here has been people. And people are very complex. Starting a company is a very complex process. And the challenges that you come across can be very unique. And so what value I hope to bring 
not just as an investor, but as a partner, is to empower these founders to reach, or these teams, not just the founders, but the founders and their teams, to reach their maximum potential. And the reason why you have over probably 2,000 investors out there today is because every founding team has their own set of unique challenges and has a unique ideal partner profile. I personally feel like as if I have um, a good case to make, given the experiences that I've had in my personal background, to be the ideal partner for a subset of these of these entrepreneurs. There are many entrepreneurs and teams that are probably better off partnering off with someone else. Um, and so I think it is naive for an expect for an investor to believe that they would be the best partner for any entrepreneur doing anything. Um, I do believe that there are certain types of hard problems that are selling into markets that are not very well defined, um, requiring certain types of teams um, that I think that I would be the right partner for. And I do everything from help the companies think about their strategy around their product, around fundraising, around recruiting, and even going through individual processes as to how to go about doing these things. In fact, I had a a, a strategy call for a few hours last night with one of my companies as to how they should launch and manage their recruiting process. Um, I was speaking to a, a relatively, you know, um, uh, individual contributor type uh, uh, candidate earlier this morning for another one of my companies. So I feel like there are certain skill sets and experiences and backgrounds that are meaningful and helpful for a certain subset of entrepreneurs. And I feel like I am very much, um, uh, you know, uh, well suited for those, as are other members of my team. So, as a firm, given the fact that we all have unique backgrounds and unique expertise, and um, uh, and ways that we can bring value to our companies, how we're all complementary like that feels like as a firm, um, we can provide some pretty good coverage for the types of companies and types of founding teams out there. Yeah, great. I, I wanted to get to. Uh, a little bit more narrowly on on sort of some some of the future uh, developments within tech that you uh, that you kind of envision yourself. But right before that, so you mentioned uh, Aiva as one as one you know company you invested in and, and founding team. Out of these other sort of eighteen ish companies that you sort of have in your portfolio, is there one 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 or two others that would strike you as an example of what we have just talked about, where they came into your office and sort of blew you away, but not with their Ivy League degrees, but they blew you away with with a concept that you believed in that came from nowhere, uh, apparently. Yeah, so I feel like um, having done a PhD myself um, and being realistic as to what the scope of my own capabilities are has made me not put too much emphasis on degrees period, and um, has made me put a lot more emphasis on the ability for a founding team to tell a story around why what they're doing is important and what kind of impact it will have. And these people in the portfolio um, have come from many different backgrounds, 
doing so. For example, when we met Tim Kentley Clay in 2015 or 2014, he's a creative artist and he wanted to start this company, Zoops, that would offer a robo taxi service. Um, directly to consumers. And that was a technology that obviously to this day still doesn't exist. And many, many billions of dollars have been spent towards solving this problem. So um, his ability to articulate this vision and create excitement around this vision enabled him to recruit and partner with Jesse Levinson, who was the captain of the Stanford driverless car team uh, participating in the DARPA Grand Challenge, who is one of the best minds out there to solve the driverless car problem and recruit the key people that would be needed um, to solve the problem. And since then, they've been acquired. They've been acquired by Amazon, and they are still added to this day. So, um, the, these skill sets are not skill sets that are taught at academic at academic institutions. In fact, the opposite is taught, where you are told not to say anything unless you are adding to the body of knowledge. So if you have a vision for something, first of all, that vision has to be intellectually significant and you have to actually go out and do it and prove it before you can talk about it. And the world of startups is very different. It's the opposite where you have to articulate that vision at the outset and then not necessarily have any idea how to get there, but be able to attract those people and those resources that you need uh, to get there. So as a result, I feel like as if a lot of folks from the academic kind of ecosystem, I would dare say are probably even disadvantaged relative to people that are that do not come from those types of institutions. So I would agree with you that they might initially be disadvantaged, but wouldn't you say that there has been a push in the opposite direction, which is almost like counter-cyclical? I would agree with that, right? So you, you know, used to be that only, you know, one school in each region was like an entrepreneurial school. And I would, for example, count MIT as one of them. And then nowadays, like if you run around Boston, you would be hard pressed not to find an entrepreneurial accelerator program at any university. That's right. But that, of course, doesn't mean that everybody, you know, overnight becomes an entrepreneur at a university. And it is also the case that it creates a lot of tension with, within these universities. Would you say that you kind of generally worried about how academic knowledge has not been able to take in the needs of innovation? Or would you simply just say that they're sort of two diametrically opposed things? Because it's it's almost actually controversial to say that now, because everybody in academia thinks that, oh, we have an innovation department, we've got IP, you know, license offices, we've we've taken care of that, you know, don't worry about it, we can do both. I think it's important to make the distinction between technical innovation and business building. I feel like technical innovation is necessary for building a defensible business, but it is not sufficient. And to the point that you're making, I think it is absolutely a good thing that um, universities are taking uh, entrepreneurship seriously and are building these accelerators so people can focus on the reduction to practice of a lot of the uh, uh, technologies that are developed on campus towards kind of um, uh, 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 transferring them um, to market. And so 
that is a, a necessary step, but it's not a sufficient step towards building a, a interesting and um, uh, a, um, a business that would be an interesting investment for, for a venture capitalist or any other type of investor. So I would... I do not expect the, the the universities or the academic establishment to master the the, the process of creating companies. Um, I think they can do a good job developing the technologies, um, creating proof of concepts and products around the technologies, and in some cases building businesses around them. Um, I feel like it is outside of their scope to to really you know build the other side of the equation which is building a a scalable business around these assets to the earlier part of the conversation you rattled off a few uh technologies you talked about augmented reality and 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 metamaterials and uh robotics and and driverless cars keep in mind that none of these are businesses these are assets these are assets that could be the basis of an interesting business or may not be the, the basis of an interesting business, but it's the, the, the role of the entrepreneur, which may or may not come from these academic institutions to figure out how to package these assets into a business that can become a high growth, high margin, attractive business for, for an investor. So keep in mind that these are different disciplines that we're talking about here. And a no, lot of this people is tend a, to forget that. No, I agree. And I think that having established this sort of foundation in terms of how you are thinking about this, so I see that you, you know, in your way of thinking tech areas or even technologies are just assets that need to be packaged in order to be or not be relevant for, for innovation. I'm now curious, uh, as we sort of moving to a close here, about if you look at the next decade and you think about what sorts of companies, what sorts of technologies, or 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 what kind of society are we building here? Uh, where is this heading? Like we we talked, we have talked a little bit dancing around your thesis for what you want to see developed. But I'm now sort of, I guess, my question needs to be, what do you want to see developed? How do you expect or hope to be surprised? Because you 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 know, even if you plan for something, so I guess you can answer it any way you want. You can answer. Which, what do you think we're likely to see, and what of the, what are some of the things you're hoping comes into your office tomorrow and the next uh, few years? So, I, if you would have asked me this question, say 14, 15 years ago, I would have rattled off a bunch of things that I'd be interested in seeing. Um, rather than give you a specific business idea or a business plan. Um, I'll, I'll tell you that I would be interested in seeing from a high level people with a interesting novel thesis as to how to disrupt or how to vastly improve an area that a lot of people have perhaps attempted but failed to improve. So, for example, if you look at our healthcare system, um, there are many companies trying to improve healthcare, um, but very few have been able to have a significant impact um, while building great businesses in the process. So that is an area that's very exciting for me. If you look at education, there are people that spend, you know, four years and six digits 
worth, perhaps even, you know, we're, we're trending in a very upward direction there on education, which does not necessarily translate to earnings. So how do we bridge that gap where people can minimize the amount of time and money that they spend on uh, having an informal edu- or on, an, on a formal education that can, ma- that can maximize income for them throughout the course of their, their, their careers? And then if you look at housing and homes, you know, people spend the vast majority, depending on where you are in the country, um, of their earnings on putting a roof over their heads. And so as a society, we have succeeded in being able to feed ourselves um, and, you know, in a way that is economical and cheap. And we have, you know, through vaccines and basic health care, we're no longer dying of, you know, cholera and, and bacterial infections, um, uh, you know, or, you know, other things that made people die in their 40s, you know, 100, 150 years ago. So we've solved those problems. But still, like sh- shelter and housing is something that is a that is a very very expensive. Um, uh, um, uh, is a very it comes with a very high cost. And so, how do we solve that problem? So, I feel like those are three areas that where entrepreneurs have struggled to 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 create meaningful disruption and um, and an impact for for the end users for the broader population. And I feel like, um, uh, you know, it would be very interesting to see something in those areas. But again, like, I don't want to be the person that is predicting the future. I think you asked the question earlier, like, you know, like, what, what is the future you envision? I see a future that is going to be driven by great minds and great entrepreneurs and great magnets for talent um, and people who are amazing storytellers. And I want those people um, to, to view me as their partner that will help them achieve their highest potential in building their, their, their companies and building those futures. Well, thank you. That's, uh, that's very clarifying because I, I don't always get those answers. You know, I obviously, obviously always ask people that question about the future and most people, you know, run with me on that. But I think that's very, uh, interesting that you refuse that question in the sense that you don't want to be that person and, and that your role in the ecosystem right now is, uh, has changed, I guess. That's what you're saying. Cause you would have given me those answers before. That's right. I feel like if, if you would have asked me the question as a, as a grad student, then I would have given you, you know, a vision for the future of, you know, wireless communications or the future of low power compute, which was the area that I was active on as a graduate student or in my PhD thesis. But, um, I feel like now in this role as a venture capitalist, it's not my job to second guess founders or to vet ideas. It's to get behind those that I believe um, would be the, that where I could be their best partner and helping them get to where they want to go. So I want to be more like that rocket booster, more so than the navigator that sits behind the helm, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Shaheen, look, it's been it's fascinating, and and your focus on on people surely uh, pays off. Thank you so much for enlightening us about your your approach and your your thoughts about this sort of particular juncture and where where you are uh, also. So, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor. You have just listened to episode one hundred and forty-five of the Futurized Podcast with host Trunar Nevenheim, futurist and author. 
If you are interested in Trance products or services, feel free to check out futurize.org slash store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of Trance books, such as Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership from Below. If you are interested in all of Trond's projects, check out his website, trondandheim.com, which has links to all his other podcasts as well as his public appearances. The topic of this episode was investing in SciTech futures. And in this conversation, we talked about investing in emerging science and technology ventures at the outermost edges of what is possible. My takeaway is that investing in SciTech futures will always be risky, exhilarating, and important. The impact of deep tech is never given, and even one wrong turn can be costly both for VCs and for society. The future is also uncertain. Having said that, engaging with the future in this tangible way is the only way to explore what might be and what might become. As Shaheen says, it takes unconventional investors to partner with iconoclastic founders. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 110 on the metaverse reality, episode 98, practicing multimodal AI, or episode 31, the future of commoditized robotics. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes. If so, do let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. Futurized is created in association with Yegi, the Insight Network. Yegi lets clients create multidisciplinary teams consisting of a subject matter expert, academics, consultants, data scientists, and generalists as team leaders. Yegi's services include speeches, briefings, seminars, reports, and ongoing monitoring, and you can find Yegi at yegi.org. The Futurized team consists of podcast host and sound technician Trondheim, videographer Raul Edward Dutrivithan, and podcast marketer Nahin Israfil Hussein. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube, and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized. Conversations that matter.